The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. directed Jaws. In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us E.T. the Extraterrestrial. We will witness the arrival. The search the desertion, the fear, the discovery, the friendship, I'm keeping you, the secret, the love, the warning, the signal, the mystery. The danger. The intrusion. The wonderment. The enchantment. The hope. The connection has been made. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Hey guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host Jimbo, and joined today once again by the otherworldly Kyle. Otherworldly Kyle. Um, this is episode 118. Where we'll be talking about the uh, legendary classic movie E.T. the Extraterrestrial from 1982. But before we get started, Kyle, first off, we have a new review I'd like to read before I give you your question of the week. Ooh, all right. The new review is a five star. I listened to my first episode and loved it as the title. I just listened to my first episode, a review of Dr. Shivago, and feel like I've seen the movie, and I also want to watch it too. Jimbo and Kyle give cool facts, and their opinions are uh, and awesome information uh, I never knew. I'm looking forward to more episodes and have added them to my playlist. That was from Christy1961. So thank you, Christy. We appreciate the review and kind words. Christy, you are too kind. I love uh, you. Thank you. Hopefully, hopefully you keep listening. Hope we can uh, keep 
doing yeah. a good job for you. You're so, hard to be a fan for life now. I, I insist. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, the question of the day is, if you had an alien like E.T. visit you, what are three things that you would want to do with the alien? Oh. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, three things i like to do with the alien. Uh, you know... <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, like, what are things that... Uh, I, man. You know, I... That's a really good question, Jimbo. <laughs> that's a really good question. I have no idea what I do with my little alien buddy friend. Um, <laughs> I really couldn't think of the first thing. Like, I just, like, I take him for a drive, I guess. I don't know. Look at the world. All get, the colors. I can see you getting one of them... Uh, Motorcycles with the the, the seat next to you, <laughs> next to you, like, with goggles on. Or goggles on. <laughs> I just I pick him up and I hold him out to the sunroof while driving downtown. <laughs> <laughs> Look at everything, and he's just freaking. Ah! You guys recreate the Titanic scene. I'm flying, <laughs> and you hold an ET up like this. Exactly. <laughs> they probably do oh. the Lion King scene where you bring him over to the side <laughs> of a mountain, raise him up. <laughs> Look at. <laughs> Uh, Look at my favorite alien turd monster. You know what would be funny is uh, sitting down and watching ET with him. <laughs> He'd be like, "I don't act like just that. Like this? That's not how we are." <laughs> when they find you, you'll be the frog. <laughs> yeah, you know, what? I I don't know. I just thought it was a silly question to finally ask you, great, but you know, I'd take you to like White Castle or something. <laughs> just like <saying> White Castle. <laughs> Getting some onion chips, yeah, exactly. you know, sack of sack of ten. <laughs> yeah, like, like, don't read the news. Don't even read I just like just shielding him from the world is like the real answer. Like, oh man, alien life and it's kind. Oh my gosh, please don't see <laughs> and, uh, anything. And one thing I would do is I'd go get a bicycle and I'd make him pedal. While I sit in the basket <laughs> exactly. on the front because <laughs> yeah, see how, how see what you did to poor Ellie. You know how much you weighed. Excellent. All right, Kyle. Thanks, Thanks, ahead, let's, let's go ahead and take away you E.T. started this in the right tone. <laughs> All right. E.T., the extraterrestrial, uh, released on May 26th of 1982. Directed by the legendary Steven Spielberg of many insanely great films. You know, Jurassic Park and uh, what's that? The, the Encounters from the Third Kind. Uh, Close enc- Encounters? Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, was it Third Kind? Oh, that's the Third Kind, right? That's what I'm telling myself I, right You now. know, you were here for that podcast, Kyle. You should know. I've slept since then, Jimbo. <laughs> uh, writer was Melissa Mathinson. Um, producers was Kathleen Kennedy and Steven Spielberg and also Melissa Mathinson as well. Um, composer was the legendary John Williams. Um, once again, like many, many, like Star Wars, the, the dress park again. Pretty much everything. It's like, Have you seen a great movie? John Williams is part of it. And that's just how it works. Uh, cinematographer was Alan um, DeVue. Um, this year, casting director was Jane Feinberg and Mike Finn and Marcy Liroff. For the quick um, plot summary of the film, after a gentle alien becomes stranded on Earth, he is discovered and befriended by a 10-year-old boy named Elliot. Bringing him into his suburban California house, Elliot introduces E.T. as he is dubbed to his brother, Michael, and sister, um, Gertie, and they decide to keep his existence a secret. Soon, however, he falls ill, resulting in a government intervention and a dire situation in both him for both him and Elliot. Very vague, but also pretty good summary, I guess. Um, moving on here, we have the budget of the film. This film was made for 
$10.5 million in 1982. Adjusting for inflation, that'd be about $32.2 million. Um, not, uh, you know, like compared to movies today that cost, you know, 200 or 300 or half a billion dollars to make nowadays, this film was made on the cheap dime. You know, so it's incredible, like, once again, the stuff they, they accomplished in 1982 right there. Opening weekend, it grossed just uh, $11.8 million, $11. million um, which would be just for inflation would be about $36.4 million of today. Um, so, like, you know, like made back his initial budget, probably not its marketing um, budget, but still initial budget for the film, so a good start for there. But then the big bucks came much later down the road. Gross worldwide, it made $792.9 million. Which, adjusted for inflation, comes out to $10.43 billion, with a B billion. Once again, like insanely huge money. If you listen to uh, our ET, uh, our extras and podcasts later, you realize they made about $2.9 billion after being adjusted for inflation. So, like, just insane B with a billion dollars. That puts it easily in the top 50 movies, like, grosses of all time, or top 25 even, I imagine. So, um, absolutely gargantuan uh, box office earnings for this film. It's almost surprising we didn't get some like terrible sequel down the road, or maybe we still will. Who knows? Well, we'll talk about it. Get a legacy notes. sequel that will just blow your mind how bad the idea is, but also could still work. <laughs> uh, moving on to some of the cool um, um, awards here. We have a huge cavalcade list of awards that I'm going to move on to. Um, we have the 2021 release, uh, uh, 2021 rewards just last year for the Online Film and Television Association, where it was added to the Film Hall of Fame for its excellent musical score by John Williams. Then, going all the way back to 1983, we have the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films Awards, where it won the award for Best Music, Award John Williams, Best Writing, related to Melissa Matheson, Best Special, Best Special Effects, related to Carlo Rambaldi and Dennis Murren, um, Best Poster Art, Award to John Alvin, I can totally imagine that, because of course you got the iconic moonshot, like that's been recreated in other films, like, at least 100 times, probably. And then the poster itself, just incredibly iconic. And then we also have the Best Science Fiction Award um, for the Saturn Award as well. And let's see here. And that concludes the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films for that year. Then we have the Gold Spirit Awards, where it won the um, best, edition of, best edition of the existing score in 2017. So it was a remaster of the, um, uh, the, the remastering of the songs from that film. Then in 2004, we also have the Online Film and Television Association, where it won. It was added to their Film Hall of Fame, so it'll be um, you know um, you know kept forever and hailed in history. In 2003, it also won the Saturn Award for Best DVD Classic Film Release for the Ultimate Gift Set it had back in 2003. So that's like an excellent addition there. In the year 2000, also won the PGA Award, and it was added to the Hall of Fame for Stephen, uh, awarded to both Steven Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy. And in 1994, it was added to the National Film Preservation Board in the USA. In 84, it was won the Golden Screen with a one-star award in Germany. In 1984, it won the Grammy for Best Recording for a Children's Movie. Then moving on, in 1983, it also had the awards for the Japanese Academy, where it won the f- award for Best Foreign Language Film, for, you know, Japanese to English, obviously, and um, won the popular wor- the Popularity Award for Most Popular Movie, for E.T. Then moving on to, to the 1983 BAFTA Awards, it won the Best Score, once again, awards to the legendary John Williams. 
Then and also 90, the 93 Blue Ribbon Awards, it won the Best Foreign Language Film. I don't know where the Blue, War- Blue Ribbon Awards actually take place. i got to look that up sometime, maybe during this podcast. Then next up, we have the Boston Society of Film Critic Awards. We have the Best Film Award and Best Director Award awarded to Steven Spielberg. Then in 1983, we also have the Cinema Writers Circle Awards in Spain for Best Foreign Film. Then the David D. Donatello Awards that had the also won the award for Best Foreign Director Award to Steven Spielberg. Then in 83, we have the Photogrammas de Plata Award, where it won the award for Best Foreign Film. And 1983 Golden Globe Awards, it won the Best Motion Picture for a Drama, and was also the Best Original Score, version to John Williams. And 93 Golden Screen Awards, it won the Golden Screen Award in Germany. Then also in the 1983 Grammy Awards, it won the Grammy for Best Instrumental Instrumental Arrangement Accompany, Accompanying Vocals, awarded to John Williams for the, the song Flying theme for E.T. the Extraditional. And it also won the Best Instrumental Contribution for the exact same song for Flying for the theme in the E.T. the Extraditional. Kyle, the Blue Ribbon Awards are film-specific prizes awarded solely by movie critics and writers in Tokyo, Japan. Tokyo, The Japan. awards were established in 1950 by the Association of Tokyo Film Journalists, which is composed of film correspondents from seven Tokyo-based sports newspapers. Oh, that's really cool. Awesome. That sounds like a really interesting organization, actually. Huh. Blue Ribbon Awards. Huh. Um, next up, we have the um, Cinema Junpao Awards, um, where it won the Best Foreign Language Film, um, um, both awarded to Steven Spielberg. Um, for both Reader's Choice and the um, the actual Official Association's award themselves. Then in 1983 Motion Picture Sound Editor Awards, it won the Golden Reel Award for Best Sound Editing and Sound Effects. Then also in the 1983 National Society of Film Critic Awards, it won the Best Director Award awarded to Steven Spielberg. The 1983 People's Choice Awards in the USA gave it the Favorite Motion Picture of the Year Award. The St. Jordi Awards gave it the um, the Major Peculiar Inf- uh, Infantile, which I assume means Best Motion Picture, probably, um, awards to Steven Spielberg. Then for the 83 Writers Guild of America Awards, it won the Best Drama Written Directly for the Screen for Melissa Matheson's um, um, writing there for the original um, script. Then for the Young Artist Awards, it won the Best Family Feature, um, the Best Young Artist Award for Best Family Feature Animated Musical or Fantasy. That's very odd for series not animated feature or music. Well, I guess it is fantasy technically. Then also has the Best Young Picture Actor Award, rewarded to Henry Thomas, who we'll get to later in the casting. Then also had Best Young Supporting Actor in Motion Picture for Robert McNaughton's role. We'll get to him later as well. And Best Young Supporting Actress, again, um, was also awarded to Drew Barrymore. Who did, should deserve all the awards there. <laughs> um, Heartland Film um, won the award for Truly Moving Motion Picture Award, awarding to Steven Spielberg. Truly Moving Motion Picture. Moving Motion Picture. <laughs> That's great. Um, the Jupiter Award was awarded to um, Best International... Uh, the Best International Film Jupiter Award was also awarded to Steven Spielberg in 1982. Then for the 1982 Kansas City Film Critics Circle Awards was awarded Best Director to, once again, Steven Spielberg again. And I'm coming up to the end here, finally. We have the 1982 Los Angeles Film Critics Association Awards, where it won Best Picture, Best Director, and Best um, New Generation Award. Um, the Best Picture and Best Director, of course, to Spielberg Spielberg, and New Generation Award was awarded to Melissa Matheson. 
And then in 1982, it won the National Board of Review Award, where it was added to the top 10 films of the year. So, Kyle, just a little thing I'd like to throw out there. Yes. John Williams has been nominated for 52 Academy Awards, winning five, six Emmy Awards, winning three, 25 Golden Globe Awards, winning four, 72 Grammy Awards, winning 25, 16 British Academy Film Awards, winning seven, 22 Saturn Awards, winning eight. With 52 Oscar nominations, William currently holds the record for the most Oscar nominations for a living person and is the second most nominated person in Academy Award history behind only who? I don't know who it would be. Walt Disney. Walt Disney. Who has 59. As well as the only person in the history of the Academy Awards to have received nominations in seven consecutive decades. 47 of Williams' Oscar nominations are for Best Original Score and five are for the Best Original Song. He won four Oscars for Best Original Score and one for Best Scoring Adaptation and Original Song Score for Fiddler on the Roof. Incredible. No, absolutely. Because I was trying to find out how many awards he actually has, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if there's a, a... a trophy case that would hold all of them. <laughs> it's not a trophy case. It's a trophy wall. It'd probably be, it'd probably be a it's house. It's a trophy mall. It's a house. Yeah, it's yeah. a house made of trophies. So I thought um, I'd throw that out there. We might have to do an episode just on John Williams one day just to cover everything he, he's done. He is an easy topic to fill a book worth for, I'm sure. Um, I was, was going to say this for the notes later, but also because it is an award in itself. Um, the Guinness Book of World Records also has the most Oscars won for visual effects awarded to Dennis Murren. Um, Dennis Murren, who was a special you know, visual effects you know, uh, producer on this film, um, Dennis Murren won the Academy Award for Visual Effects a total of six times between 1983 and 1994. He also received two special achievement awards in 1981 for the films Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back, mm-hmm. and the 1984 film Star Wars Episode VI, Return of the Jedi. He also received a technical achievement award in 1982 for the development of a motion picture figure mover for, for animation photography. In addition, Mirren holds the record for most Oscar nominations for visual effects. He has been nominated for on he's been nominated on thirteen separate occasions. The first being in nineteen eighty two for Dragon Slayer, um, released in nineteen eighty one, and the most recent being the two thousand six film War of the Worlds, War of the Worlds, released in two thousand five. That's so, the Tom Cruise one. Uh, yes, that's the Tom Cruise one, which is an excellent film. Uh, and that concludes the awards for E.T., the extraterrestrial. <laughs> sure? And that's enough of this podcast. No. Ooh, okay, we're done. Um, moving on here, we have the technical details here. Um, runtime is just 115 minutes, but actually it's 120 minutes for the United States version. Um, sound mix is a Dolby Stereo for the original theatrical release. And then it was actually uh, remastered for DTS X for the Ultra HD Blu-ray, and for the 25th to 20th anniversary edition, it was Dolby Digital EX, and it was um, also remastered for DTES. I'm guessing these are the Dolby Digital um, different like, um, standards that have been releasing over the past decades, and they continue to remaster this film because it's a film worth remastering. Frankly, um, next up, Color Info. This is a color film in 1982. Aspect ratio is just 1.66 by one, um, but it actually has the intended ratio of 1.85 by one. Very standard for the industry overall. Um, camera um, camera wise, they use the Panavision Panaflex Gold and the Panavision Super Speed Mark II lenses. Very standard for the time as well. Film length, we have a film length of approximately 3,135 meters or 3,282 meters for the 20th anniversary special edition. Um, I have to go through later in the notes, but actually, I'm not sure which version I actually wrote. I actually watched in this film. I know in this version it has a, it was Ultra HD 
and it included the shotgun scenes, which is the only notable change I actually saw in the film. So yours um, did have the shotgun scenes. And mine, mine, mine did too. Mine did have the shotgun scenes as well. So I don't know, like I don't know how. And the beer scenes. And I, I don't remember, I don't remember seeing the beer scene though. That's the thing that confuses but me. But I just but showed it, it to it you. It probably it probably was in the film. I just didn't notice it because I'm a millennial. <laughs> just blame age on it. It's so good. Um, yeah. But anyways, that's the technical details of the film here. So we're gonna be moving on to the cast. Which is really, really short because there's like only like like eight main characters in the film. Really, actually, turns out even though this film feels like it has so many more characters, but that's just because of benefit to the writing of the of the movie itself and the performances and and therein. Um, so um, moving on here, we real quick. We have D. Wallace playing Mary. Um, D. Wallace is also in the film Cujo in 1983, a Stephen um, King movie, if I remember correctly. And then we have Henry Thomas playing the role of Elliot. Absolutely just incredible child performance. Um, he was also in the film 1114 in 2003. Then we have Peter Coyote playing the role of Keys. Um, Peter Coyote was also in the film Bitter Moon in 1992. Then we have Robert McDonald playing Michael. Robert was also in the film I Am the Cheese in 1983. <laughs> Great title. I have never heard of that movie, but I Am the Cheese is just... That's it, Kyle. That's going on the list. That sounds great. Next up, we have Drew Barrymore stealing every scene in the movie she has, playing the role of Gertie. Kyle's favorite character in this movie. Honestly, just fantastic. Um, Drew Barrymore was also in the film Charlie's Angels in the year 2000. Next Charlie's Angels really came out 22 years ago. Oh my god, I'm getting old. Um, Casey Martell came out. Um, Casey Martell played the role of Greg. Greg um, Casey Martell was also in the film The Amityville Horror in 1979. Then we have Sean Fryer playing the role of Steve. Um, Sean Fryer was also in the film The Real Geniuses in 1985. And then last we have um, Pat Welsh playing the voice of E.T. Pat Welsh was also in the film Star Wars Return of the Jedi in 1983. And that is the cast of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. And now I'm going to take a drink of water and pass it off to Jimbo. All right. So here we go with the trivia. Um, I will, before we get started, I will say that this is one of the movies, you know, you have certain memories when you were younger. Like I remember going to see the Goonies in theater with my cousins. I remember going to see at least Return of the Jedi because um, I remember the words up there when Jabba was speaking, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. uh, on the big screen. But this is one of the movies that I know I went to the theater to see, and, and it stuck with me all these years. So it's definitely a trip down memory lane for me, childhood memories. So it always holds a special place in my it, heart. It's a nostalgia piece that spans generations. I mean, I, I can like... And it holds up. Yeah. There's... Like, I don't even know if it actually happened, but I can easily imagine my memory of being like, I'm curled up in a blanket watching this movie as, like, a six-year-old, right? Like, definitely, <laughs> definitely. That had to have happened. That was Kyle even last night in his uh, Fort 10 and That's me every room. night in my Fort 10 <laughs> living room. That's right. So here we go. Let's talk about a little bit of trivia about this movie. So at the auditions, Henry Thomas thought about the day his dog died to express his sadness because uh, Steven Spielberg brought him in and said, okay, let's just say the government came in and took your dog away from you. So... Elliot used that as, oh, my dog had just died to express it. Director Steven Spielberg actually cried and offered him the role of Elliot on the spot. I can see why. There, there is the, um, I might post it on Facebook later, but like there's a video of like his audition tapes and like that too, and it's just clear he's just like an incredible young actor, like mm. way, way beyond um, what you would consider a regular child actor to be able to do, and uh, it's actually incredible. Um. E.T.'s face was modeled after poet Carl Sandburg, Albert Einstein, and a pug dog. <laughs> what do you get when you cross Albert Einstein, Carl Sandburg, and a pug dog? 
E.T. You get E.T. That's uh, <laughs> sure. Sure. E.T.'s communicator it. actually worked and was constructed by Henry Feinberg, an expert in science and technology interpretation for the public. So that thing they made in the forest mm -hmm. the, with the fork oh, the and all that. Full scale even? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's so really it actually worked. Uh, Steven Spielberg shot most of this film from the eye level of a child to further connect with Elliot and E.T. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll say this too real quick. I did not remember this until I just watched this last night. Mm -hmm. I did not remember that they were playing Dungeons and Dragons at the beginning of that movie. Yeah, they weren't, were they? Yeah. That's so weird. Yeah. You know, you, you know, you see the Stranger Things now these mm -hmm. days and all that, and that just, I was like, wow. Now it all comes back to me, you know, because Elliot's like, it's my turn to play. You know yeah. What I mean? And of course, that's why they didn't in Stranger Things in the first place. They didn't, you know. It's just, right. You know, in, 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 so I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but on June 27, 1982, Steven Spielberg personally uh, screened the film at the White House for President Ronald Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan. Uh, he also, in the notes somewhere, uh, screened it for the Queen. So, um, wow. So I gave him royal, yeah, gave him the royal treatment, literally. Right. Um, yeah. Um, D. Wallace says that fans of movies, um, fans of the movie at conventions she goes to, always refer to as just E.T.'s mom or the mother from E.T. <laughs> over here, and that's <laughs> so heartwarming. I mean, that's what she's gonna be. Yeah, yeah. That's that's just it. That's your life now. When it was test screened at the Cannes Film Festival as an unofficial entry. It brought the house down, receiving a standing ovation that eluded most of the official entries. Oh, wow. Can you imagine this just being snuck into the Cannes Film Festival? Like, yeah, they've got a little something yeah, to show. No big deal. Just we don't know like, how it's going to be, yeah, but... Yeah, it's just this little thing right by Steven Spielberg. You know, composer John Williams, some guy. I don't know. <laughs> uh, E.T. riding in the basket on Elliot's bicycle flying in front of the moon is the trademark image of Spielberg Amblin Entertainment. It's probably the one of the most iconic scenes of the movie. But if you watch the movie, and something I noticed last night for the first time is that when at the end of the movie where they're getting chased and the, uh, all the boys' bikes fly in the air, it passes the sun just like it did the moon. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, uh, you know, night today shot like uh, like it, like like kind of like you already knew it was going to be the biggest thing in the world. Like even if you didn't know, <laughs> it's just that's it's really impressive filmmaking there. Of course, yeah. you where you uh, Kyle, mm -hmm. the late Michael Jackson, actually owned one of the ET puppets. I would say I'm surprised, not, but not, I'm really not, not surprised. The least, actually, yeah. but I would really like to have seen it. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if it's still at Neverland Ranch down there. Road trip, no, yeah. Or where, where, where are there? How many are there, and where there was, are they I all think now? There's only three. Only three. If I remember. Yeah, like one of them's in Alaska. <laughs> one of them went back to space. One of them is alive. <laughs> uh, the script was largely written while in location filming for Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark during filming breaks. Steven Spielberg actually dictated the story to screenwriter Melissa Matheson, who was there with her then-boyfriend and future husband, Harrison Ford. Awesome. Um, according to the interview, Robert McNaughton on Yahoo Movies, McNaughton explained that the original ending involved a game of Dungeons & Dragons. The last scene in the movie wasn't supposed to be the scene that ends up in the movie. The last scene was going to be all of us playing Dungeons & Dragons soon, that this time, um, Elliot's Dungeon Master. Because he was one that found E.T., he sort of got in with the group, and, and so that he was supposed to be in the final scene, it was a script and everything. And they would paint up the roof, and you would see the communicator is still working. In other words... Elliot is still in touch with E.T., but after they did the score, the music, and they saw what they had with the spaceship taking off and everything, how can they follow that? I mean, it was a wise choice. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, that's, that's like an epilogue scene, but not actual ending, you know? Right. So I think that's a, they made the right decision. Steven Spielberg reportedly spent $100,000 on the 20th anniversary re-release of the movie in 2002. The new version, released theatrically and on DVD, contains some additional scenes, small CGI enhancements of the E.T. puppet, 
And in the scene where Ellie and his friends escape from the FBI, the rifles held by the federal agents were digitally replaced with walkie-talkies. Spielberg stated that he had always regretted using this scene in the first place and that he would remove it if ever if he ever reissued the film. However, in 2011, he changed his mind once again, stating that there would be no more digital alterations of his movies and urging people to watch E.T. in its original unaltered 1982 version. The Blu-ray and UHD editions that were later released contained only the original theatrical version, and the 20th anniversary DVD uh, version has since gone out of circulation. Oh, okay. So uh, like and difficult to even find. So, sure. in 2022, this movie is 40th anniversary this year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 40th anniversary. Uh, almost 10 percent of the of the 10.5 million budget went in on the alien creature puppets and related animatronics. Elliot's last name is never mentioned, although the character's full name was later confirmed in a 2015 interview as Elliot Taylor. Mm-hmm. Initials, E.T. E.T. That's incredible. I gotta look up one of the real estate while I'm doing these notes. Um, it's shown throughout the movie that Elliot has rainbow blinds. Later in the movie, E.T. points at the sky with curtains down and saying, with, when saying, phone home. At the final scene of the movie, when the spaceship flies off, it makes the rainbow before it leaves Earth. Yeah, it was kind of cheesy yeah. watching the rainbow. You know what I mean? I was like, but I it is it what cool. it is. Yeah. Uh, Steven Spielberg stated in an interview that E.T. was a plant-like creature and neither male nor female. Uh, Deborah Winger. You know who that was? No, I don't. Kyle, oh. I'm, I just can't with you if you don't know who that was. I, 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 I you better look names. it up. Okay. Deborah Winger. Deborah Winger. Because I don't want to spoil it for you. Okay. Not only provided the temp voice for E.T., but also played one of the ghouls in the Halloween sequence. She is wearing a monster mask and a lap coat and carries the poodle. You remember that lady? Ah, uh, yes, yes. Okay, now I recognize her. This was voted as the 20th greatest film of all time by Entertainment Weekly. Uh, the gag where the mother looks in the closet and sees the alien surrounded by toys was dreamed up by none other than Robert Zemeckis. I think that was one of the funniest scenes of the movie. Looks he looks great. just like one of the stuffed yeah, animals yeah, standing yeah. there like... <laughs> don't blink. Don't, yeah, yeah. don't blink. Uh, like a toy star moment almost. James Taylor wrote a song intended for use in the movie called Song for You Far Away. This song was ultimately not used in the movie. However, it was eventually recorded in 1985 for the release on his That's Why I'm Here album. Um, secrecy was so tight during production that even the poster designers didn't know what E.T. looked like when they were creating the iconic first poster of the human and the alien hand touching. They only had Steven Spielberg's notes to go on. So that's an interesting factoid there. And also, um, this is the, as it's so recent, this hasn't been added to our current notes, but like the film Nope makes a very clear reference to E.T. and the kid's hand touching with, uh, 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 I don't remember the name of the, the character, but like essentially there's the name of the character also touching the, the hand of an ape in a very similar shot to E.T. in the and, and not only that, but security was so high that Spielberg made his dog wear a security clearance tag. It's in the notes somewhere. I just remember that. You've got to see that if you have the opportunity. Uh, this was the highest grossing movie of all time worldwide until Spielberg's release of Jurassic Park. Adjusted for inflation today is still the fourth highest grossing movie of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, this film was not released on home video until 1988, six years later. That's insane. Uh, though many have suggested this film contains elements of Christian allegory, director Steven Spielberg says any parallels are strictly coincidental. Furthermore, Spielberg adds that if he ever made a Christian allegory, his mother, a devout Jew, would probably never forgive him. <laughs> I, I, I mean, like that, like finding that allegory specifically is like, like, well, like, you'd, like the story of like Christian allegories is also like the hero's journey story in so many respects as well. Like you just, that, all of those stories come together in the same way to an extent. Um, 
The role of Mary, the children's mother, was first offered to Shelley Long, but she had already signed on to film Night Shift and was forced to decline. Mm -hmm. um, Earlier in the movie, when Elliot is leaving um, Reese's Pieces as a trail back to his house, he's whistling the first. He's whistling the first few whistles sound just like R two D two in the original Star Wars films. All right, Kyle. Yes. Question. Questions. Answers. Eminem's or Reese's Pieces? Oh gosh, I love Reese's Pieces so much. I do too. I, I think they're great, fantastic. They, that's probably one of my favorite candies. Mm -hmm. I, think they, I think even the shell is better on the Reese's Pieces than yes, the M Ms. Absolutely, think, yeah. But what about peanut M Ms? Or not peanut M Ms? Peanut butter M Ms. Peanut. Butter. I think it's just a ripoff of Reese's Pieces. But that's just. I don't me. think I've ever had peanut butter M Ms, and I don't want to. That a boy. There we go. A foil, uh, foley artist John Roche said he used a wet T-shirt crammed with Jello to simulate the noises of ET's waddling walk. <laughs> I swear, like if I could do it, I would. But like the sound, like the, the every story from a sound designer is like the dumbest, funniest story ever about how they achieved one effect. Like, I know. Oh yeah, I just smashed a cabbage with, with a hammer, and that's how I got the voice of this character. Like what? <laughs> it's always so good. I love it. Steven Spielberg asked Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones to contribute a song for E.T. the Extraterrestrial Storybook album. Spielberg was so pleased with their song, Someone in the Dark, that he asked them to make the entire album, which in spite of the size of the task, they agreed to do. This box set included an LP, a book to read along with it, and a poster of E.T. and Jackson. Epic Records allowed Jackson to record the album for MCA Records on the condition that it not be released until after Christmas of 1982, so as not to compete with Thriller, and that Someone in the Dark would uh, not be released as a single. Both of the conditions were breached by MCA Records. They released the storybook in November 1982 and gave promo copies of Someone in the Dark to radio stations. MCA Records was forced to withdraw the album and were prohibited from releasing Someone in the Dark as a single after court action was taken by Epic against them in a $2 million lawsuit, which MCA settled by paying Epic chief Walter Yetnikoff $500,000. Jones claims neither he nor Jackson received a dime for making the record, in spite of the large cash settlement involved and its considerable success. The audiobook earned Jackson a Grammy Award in 1984 for Best Recording for Children. Upon collecting the award and, talking, er, and taking home a record eight Grammys from an unprecedented 12 nomination, the singer stated that of all the awards that he had gotten that night, he was most proud of this one. Wow. That's actually an amazing story. And I think it's a great example of sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness rather than permission, <laughs> which is not always good advice, to be fair. But in this one case, I'm like, you know what? I bet it was totally worth it to break all those agreements. <laughs> uh, Steven Spielberg worked simultaneously on both this film and Poltergeist in 1982, which was directed by Toby uh, uh, Tobe Hooper, but produced by Spielberg. And both were made uh, to complement each other. E.T. represented suburban dreams and Poltergeist represented suburban nightmares. Oh, wow. Um, three of the main characters appeared in movies based on the original Stephen King books. D. Wallace appeared in the movie Cujo. Drew Barrymore appeared in the movie um, Firestarter and Cat's Eye. And Henry Thomas appeared in the film Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep. Most have recently. you watched Dr. Sleep? I have, and I thought it was excellent. What I haven't watched think? it yet. Oh, it's so good. Ian McGregor's always a delight. Do you know what the working title for this film was called? Uh, was it T.E.? I'm kidding. <laughs> a boy's life. A boy's life. Not to be confused with 
A Bug's Life. A Boy's Life. <laughs> a boy's life. It was changed during production. Isn't that the name of a current film right now? A Boy's Life, where they recorded like a, a kid growing up after like twelve years. I want to say that's actually a, no, it was Boyhood. Boyhood. I'm thinking the movie Boyhood. Uh, uh, Et's voice was provided by Pat Welsh, an elderly woman who lived in uh, Marion County, California. Welsh smoked two packets of cigarettes a day, which gave her voice a quality that sound effects creator Ben Burt liked. She spent nine and a half hours recording her part and was paid three hundred eighty dollars by Burt for her services. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Bert also recorded 16 other people uh, and various. Uh, that is uh, just as cruel. Oh, here's this movie that made two yeah, and a half but this billion was, this dollars. Was before that, though, you know what I mean? Still, the movie made two and a half billion so dollars. You take here's 400 bucks, Granny. So, go buy, a, go buy so a chair. You divide what? Let's see, 380 by nine. Well, you got there six. She got about what sixty something dollars an hour. <laughs> Kyle's, Kyle's face is just no. Blobbing. Yeah, that's like, what it was. It's like you have a pile of sand, and she can't even take a grain of the percentage. <laughs> Not even a grain out. But it was during the recording. This wasn't. This wasn't. You that made all this money even yet. Retroactively, you got this old lady smoking two packs a day. Her life's miserable. Here's four hundred bucks. Why do you assume? Her, why do you assume her life was miserable because she was smoking two packs a day? Because that's that, that's who's happy and smokes two packs a day, Jimbo. <laughs> I was waiting for you to go, this guy. (laughs) 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 I don't smoke. (laughs) I don't either. Uh, Most of the full body puppetry was performed by a two foot, ten inch tall stunt man. But the scenes in the kitchen were done using a 12 year old boy who was born without legs, but was an expert on walking on his hands. Oh, wow. That's kudos to him. Impressive. Yes. That was a funny scene, too. It was a great scene. Just I like hitting the cabinet door and being drunk. And I'm going to go ahead and talk about this point, too. Go ahead. Go for it. It's in the notes somewhere, but I, I want to talk about Gotta it. Got to do it now. I thought it was funny when Elliot tells Gertie that grown-ups can't see E.T. Only human, or only kids can. If you remember the scene in the kitchen where they, she brings the groceries home and E.T., she, she opens the door and she smacks E.T. Yeah. She's like, well, I think you killed him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And then uh, she's so busy, she gets on the phone, and E.T. just like walking this way around her. Then he wa- so, so therefore, good. there is some truth to that. Adults can't see him. I think it yeah. was a running gag throughout the movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, thought it was yeah. funny. I thought, it was, yeah, it like it, a great in joke of the film. Was like, yeah, <laughs> uh, Kyle. Here's a here's a fact that I definitely didn't know when I was a kid, and I'm sure you didn't know either. But you remember the plants that are in E.T. The plants, you know, the one that dies and the yes. one that blooms. Yeah, blooms. They. <laughs> Uh, they are made from some inflated condoms with polyester blooms. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, the, uh, the things you realize, you find out from your childhood movies. Like, you know what I mean? I was like, really? It's it's so creative. Like the MacGyver stories you get out of like anything, like from sound design to production designs. It's just like, oh, I'm gonna MacGyver these two things together. All of a sudden, I make a blooming flower. What's it made of? Don't ask. <laughs> but I made it. <laughs> E.T. provided the inspiration for Neil Diamond's song Heartlight, but no mention of it is ever made uh, of the movie in the lyrics. The songwriters paid the studio a nominal sum for use of ideas from the movie. This is a C. Thomas Howell's film debut. Juliette Lewis auditioned for the role of Gertie, but her father reportedly made her turn it down. Mm-hmm. The filmmakers had requested that M&Ms be used to lure E.T., but the Mars Company denied their request, fearing that E.T. was so ugly... He would frighten the children. <laughs> Reese's Pieces were used instead, and as a direct result, Reese's Pieces sales skyrocketed. I believe they set up by 
Because of this movie, uh, more and more companies began requesting that their products be used in movies. A common practice, which was done previously with the James Bond film franchise, the end credits of a Bond film prior to 1982 listed contributing companies with their product used in the feature film. Contrary to popular belief, this was not the birth of product placement. This had been done before in Superman when a young Clark Kent gets up one morning and there's a box of Cheerios on the table next to his bed. Product Love at First Bite at the 3748 minute mark. A can of Tab Cola uh, would be shown on a shelf. E.T.'s novelization still referred to the candies as M&M's as opposed to Reese's Pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. But now it's product placement. They pay a lot of money to... It's everywhere. And I, I don't do this in the theater, but I do it all the time at home. Anytime I watch a movie and I just see that, I just see a product. It's like, oh man, trucks? I love trucks. And then just keep going on the film and seeing the ad. <laughs> in mid-2009, the home featured in the film located in the Tujunga Canyon was saved from uh, immolation and in the treacherous sta- uh, station fire. The owner of the residence said that the scorched hill behind the house looks like the surface of the moon, but that the structure itself incurred no damage in the wildfire, which up to that time had burned over 127,000 acres and claimed 62 homes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, fire alley down the Los Angeles sometimes, I swear. Yeah. Um, Drew Barrymore kept the red cowboy hat that her character wore <laughs> for the Halloween as a souvenir, and it is kept in her daughter's room. Um, maybe not to this day, but I'm sure that's what like, the Yeah, that's hanging on goes. the wall. Yeah. Hanging on the wall, still there. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, Harrison Ford initially filmed a cameo role in the film as Elliot's school headmaster, but the scene was cut. Hmm. Uh, the doctors, yeah, Casey, he belongs in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, the doctors and nurses who work on ET are actually real life emergency room technicians from the USC Medical Center. They were told to treat ET the same way they would treat a real patient, so that their dialogue and actions would seem real. Director Steven Spielberg felt that the actors wouldn't be able to make the medical dialogue sound natural, so he recruited them to deliver the lines. Mm-hmm. That's that's always kind of. I remember the film um, Armageddon, uh, Michael Bay, and then Ben Affleck's making the joke. It's just like it's like why would you not? Why would you teach oil driggers to be astronauts? Shouldn't you just teach astronauts to be oil driggers? And uh, uh, <laughs> and then Michael Bay said, "Shut up." <laughs> that was his response. And I think the same thing applies to the movie. Sometimes it's like, okay, do you want to train actors to pretend to be doctors, or do you want to train doctors to pretend to be actors? Right. And that's always kind of like a and never the twain shall meet. Exactly, you never quite have both, but. You you still make great films. Um, At one point during filming, Kyle's favorite actress in this movie, Drew Barrymore, was consistently forgetting her lines, annoying Steven Spielberg to the point where he actually yelled at her. He later found out that she had reported to work with a very high fever. Feeling guilty, he hugged her and apologized repeatedly as she cried and cried and cried. Aww. He then sent her home with a note from her director. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, it's so adorable. Even off the screen, so adorable. Drew Barrymore was just like, oh my gosh, breaking hearts. Um, the first movie in the motion picture, this is the first movie in motion picture where alien visitors, namely E.T.'s parents, have no interest in contact with humans, either hostile or friendly. Um, they are botanists, first and foremost, and E.T.'s interaction with children is purely accidental. Isn't that crazy that they were just coming here to get some plants and going to take off again? I, I, I love that pet theory even in real life that like aliens just wouldn't care at all humanity that they visited the planet they were just like, like oh yeah well, there's a lot of water here well, cool. some, some dirt alright <laughs> yeah. the same thing we did they landed in the Gobi Desert like oh that's just we, we got some samples sand. <laughs> <laughs> we think there may be intelligent life here still undetermined oh, yeah. 
the Sesame Street scene shown on the family TV with Big Bird and Grover was first aired in the premiere episode of the show's fifth season on November 19, 1973. The uh, great actor Corey Feldman was originally scheduled for a role in E.T., but over the course of a script rewrite, his part was eliminated. Mm. Steven Spielberg felt bad about the decision and promised Feldman a part in his next planned production, which turned out to be Gremlins. Mm. Feldman went on to play Tommy Jarvis in Friday the 13th, the final chapter. That brings you to my next one, too. Also kind of related. Uh, Ralph Macchio, legendary um, uh, karate kid. Karate kid. Yeah, karate kid. Daniel's son. Um, Ralph Macchio auditioned for the role of Tyler, also, but didn't get the role. Uh, Would have been an alternate universe right there, too. Could have been good. Could have been good. So go. did Karate Kid and E.T. take place in the same universe. universe. Exactly. That's the crossover we need for the next. You're actually, they're making the Karate Kid movie again? And it's supposed yeah. to take place. Can you imagine E.T. doing the crane kick? <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Put him in a video uh, game. He's, uh, he's going to be important. Uh, speaking tomorrow. of video game, let's go ahead and throw that fact out there. This has one oh, of the geez. hardest video games I've ever played on the Atari 2600. It's almost impossible to be. And it was so terrible that they basically took all the unsold... Recalled them. Recalled them all and dumped them and in. And dumped them in a landfill. Yeah. I think in Mexico. I think I still have a copy here. Yeah. Of and I think there's still a few hundred copies in that landfill to this day. It is I don't know how many of them are Can you imagine? I would love to have one of them, though. Yeah. The an open one? The, the, oh, I don't know if you want a landfill copy or if you want to Well, if it's unopened, they were unopened. The ones on, they there's were all no, the unsold ones. Yeah, I have no idea the condition of those landfill copies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care. Yeah, I would have no, still okay, took them. Okay, okay. I wouldn't personally. Think well, it's too bad. I want a good ET game. <laughs> there's no such thing as a good ET game. I, could, I think it'd make one. ET the Battle Royale. In, <laughs> ET is just a survival sin trying to avoid the kids. All right, I'm calling it now, Kyle. E.T. Fortnite skin. E.T. Fortnite skin. You're all skin. in it, aren't you? No, he'd be a back bling. You'd wear him on your back. That'd be hilarious. And his neck just comes just, up. He's just <laughs> out of the backpack. That'd be so good. I would I would spend too much money on that. You already do. <laughs> According to the film's t- uh, novelization, E.T. is over 10 million years old. The highest grossing film of 1982. Wait, it wait. Be- sorry, what? 10 million what? 10 million years old is how old E.T. is. What? That's what it says. What? Is over. You just glossed over that like it's not a big deal. He's 10 million years old, Jempo. <laughs> and he's the son. How old is his mom? Before all of recorded history, Jempo. E.T.'s that old. Well, that's just the that's just the novelization. That's, still, you know, I don't 10 believe million. it. 10 million. I don't believe it. 10 million. The highest grossing film in 1982. It became the most successful movie in film history until Spielberg, as we said, brought Jurassic Park. Released on the same day, 11 years later, June 11th. Okay, I'm still getting over 10 million years. <laughs> okay, I'll keep going. Sarah Michelle Geller auditioned for the role of Gertie. Uh, so who? Sarah Michelle, Sarah Michelle Geller? Buffy. Buffy. Buffy herself. Buffy did. I, she probably would have been great as well. Drew Barrymore still stole it all, though. Um, when Elliot insults Michael, um, the script did not actually specify what to say, just something insulting. D. Wallace was supposed to yell angrily at him and to sit down. When he actually heard him say, it was nothing like that, penis breath, Wallace laughed her while saying Elliot was her entirely genuine reaction. That's great. Uh, 11 years later, Henry Thomas had another encounter with aliens in the movie Fire in the Sky, the movie about the abduction of Travis Walton as Greg Hayes. I kind of need to see that movie again. It's been a while. In the Halloween scene, where E.T. sees a child in a Yoda costume and seems to recognize him, this is an inside joke by Spielberg on his good friend, Star Wars creator George Lucas. In Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, Lucas returns the joke in a scene which takes place in the Galactic Senate in the shot of various senators calling out, 
You can see E.T. species among the cinepods in the lower right-hand corner. That's so awesome. That's, uh, like, that's, that's hilarious. I, I love it. Like, great small world moments. Their friendship is uh, hilarious and always funny. Um, prior to Gertie meeting E.T., the first words she says before opening the door are, Elliot, look what I made for you. If you look closely, even when she's screaming, you'll see a piece of paper in her hand. Early on, Elliot was faking sick, so she looked after E.T. So Gertie, before she finds out the truth, thought she was really thought he really was sick and made a get well card. Oh, that's so adorable. Kyle just loves her to pieces. That was a, that, the whole character, just like the, the, the cutest little girl in the world. Uh, yeah. Michael mentions the possibility of alligators in the sewers when Ellie insists he saw something alive in the backyard shed. This urban legend inspired the film Alligator. I don't know if you've ever seen that, Kyle. It's a crazy movie. No, I just watched the film Gator, though. Which was written by John Sells. <laughs> Burt Reynolds. He's in a boat. It's great. <laughs> Coincidentally, Sells also wrote the first draft of Nice Guys for Steven Spielberg, a project that was ultimately aborted when Spielberg decided to make E.T. Mm-hmm. The song heard playing in the background at the beginning of the Dungeons & Dragons scene is People Who Died by Jim Carroll. Mm-hmm. Um, when Gertie and E.T. scream, Michael backs up onto the shelf, causing it to fall. Filming this, two criminals behind the wall pulled pens out of the wall to have them collapse. They didn't explain to Robert about it, though. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> so like, oh. And everything's on your head now. Uh, E.T.'s spaceship was designed by conceptual artist Ralph McQuarrie. If you know anything about Ralph McQuarrie, he's done a lot of artwork for Star Wars, uh, the designs. But he also designed the mothership for Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Described in the screenplay as looking like something from a Dr. Seuss story, McCoy gave the ship a distinctly Victorian Jules Verne-like appearance. Uh, Spielberg loved working with children so much in this film that he said it encouraged him to have his own children. Drew Barrymore, what did you do? You gave Spielberg kids by accident. (laughs) Steven Spielberg first approached Rick Baker about doing the designs for E.T. while Baker was prepping for an American werewolf in London. Baker did a number of designs and tests before Spielberg became furious at Baker for requesting more time and more money after the initial story changed, leading to the fallout between the two for some time. Spielberg next approached Chris Wallace, who was booked to work with David Cronenberg on Scanners. Spielberg then approached Rob Botton, who was working with John Carpenter on The Thing. Spielberg finally went to Carlo Rambaldi, whom Spielberg had worked with on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Rambaldi quickly took the job. Just <laughs> ironically enough, the iconic phrase "ET phone home" isn't said by ET first. The actual phrase by ET is "ET home phone." It's none other than Gertie who first says "ET phone home," then Elliot, then ET says it. Nice. Yeah, I just, I just Steven Spielberg with his role decks of legendary filmmakers. Like, you can just call up any time. Like, hey, you want to do this? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's make a billion dollars together again. <laughs> Um, um, E.T. was played by three models One that could walk around it on its own One that had electric moving parts And one that could be used for close-ups And one that served as a suit for the small actor And of course one of course is owned by Michael Jackson You know, estates, presumably <laughs> I wonder if he made Bubbles get in the costume And went around <laughs> I could see him trying <laughs> Coincidentally, Steven Spielberg's first feature The Sugarland Express Features a real-life sheriff named E.T. Elliot That's crazy um, this this note here, I dispute this. I I looked it up and I disputed it. So, this uh, the note said the movie with the longest ever theatrical run over a year. I know Star Wars was in the, uh, there for a long time, but I found that the Rocky Horror Picture Show is still being shown to this day. And there's a a Bollywood film that's been going on for like 
I forget how many how many years. Yeah, there's a lot of films that kind of like that, that. That gets a little bit of a hazy area where, like, if right. you want to say it, you're not entirely wrong, but not entirely right either. Right. You know. It may be one of them that lasted that long, you know what I mean? But to say it is the longest, I don't know if you can claim yeah. that, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But like Running With Wolves, Gone with is what it is. kind of things, too. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, Oh, yeah, okay, I got the security was so high about the dog thing. E.T. was insured for $1.2 million, about 10% of the entire budget for the film. Uh, $1.2 million to replace those suits. That's insane money. Um, E.T.'s, oh, okay, we have to get the uh, E.T.'s face combination that we already hit that note. Um, oh, <laughs> um, this is a fun one This is for the sequel stuff. Um, a sequel was put together after the film's massive critical and financial success. In the sequel, Elliot and his family are kidnapped by hostile aliens, and E.T., who is revealed to be over 10 million years old and named Zrek, <laughs> rescues them. Um, Steven Spielberg decided that the story told in the original 1982 was one that needed to be told, and it was perfect just the way it was, and any sequel would only diminish and it would be seen as an obvious cash grab by the studio. I believe he's right. I also believe it will still happen today. But Kyle, can you imagine E.T.? They find, he finds out Elliot's been kidnapped. You see him doing the whole getting the the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger stuff on. Gets yeah, the gun. I've seen the commando gets, where he puts on gets, the whole gets outfit. All yeah. that, that, he puts the war paint on, cocks his gun, and he says, I'll, "I'll be Drek." It's, <laughs> his name is it's, it's in Time. <laughs> <laughs> Lifestyles of the Drek and famous. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, uh, hey, I wonder if they could sue Shrek over that. Exactly, exactly. Uh, D. Oh. Wallace, Drew Barrymore, and Henry Thomas had all just starred in Big Thrillers right before this. D. Wallace was in The Howling, Drew Barrymore was in Altered States, and Henry Thomas was in Raggedy Man. Never seen that. Mm-hmm. Have you? No, I've never seen that one either. At one point in the film, Gertie's mother is reading Peter Pan to her. In 1991, Spielberg would film none other than Hook, the, the Peter Pan a movie. version of Peter Pan starring the late great Robin Williams. Williams. Love you. Coincidentally, the first and last editors of Elliot are E and T, so E.T. Um, Henry Thomas felt uncomfortable during the kissing scene with um, Erica Alenica. <laughs> Erica Helenic, um, as she was two years older than him, 10 and 12, respectively, at the time of filming. I think oh, that's a good scene, too, where he throws yeah. the guy on the ground and stands on him. And then you see the principal or, or teacher dragging him away, and her toes are like curling. You know, she's like, that's great. Such a macho move. Yeah. It's so cool. The director's trademark by Spielberg uh, Elliot's parents are divorced, and it's implied that his father wants nothing to do with his family. Divorce and absent fathers are common tropes in Spielberg's films. Uh, when the kid in the Yoda costume is seen, you can hear a snippet of Yoda's theme from The Empire Strikes Back. John Williams composed the music for both Empire Strikes Back and E.T. Um, oh, oh. Uh, um, when the Mars Inc. board of directors got wind of the story of marketing director was called out and meeting with them, they had to explain the decision to turn down the free publicity the film offered for use of the M&Ms in the film and said turn that down for Reese's Pieces instead. Although he was not dismissed for the the stigma of his mistake followed him around for the rest of his life and the acropivical uh, story is still sometimes mentioned in business schools as a classic example of a marketing <laughs> mistake. Huge, huge mistake. Huge. Do you work on a commission? Yeah. <laughs> you messed up. <laughs> at one point, Gertie looks down at E.T. and says, I don't like his feet. <laughs> this was ad-libbed by Drew Barrymore and was actually her referring to the grouping of wires coming out from the E.T. puppet. She also ad-libbed the line, give me a break, and, tells e- and Elliot tells her only little kids can see E.T. 
Or after Elliot tells her that. No. Oh, um, six years after the film was released, Orion Pictures released the flop film Mac and Me in 1988. <laughs> That's so terrible. Which was widely ridiculed, <laughs> so rightfully, terrible. as both a terrible film and an inferior E.T. ripoff. When Steven Spielberg was asked years later why neither he or Universal Studios had taken any legal action over the obvious script similarities to the E.T., he simply replied that the film was so bad, I didn't want, respons- I didn't want to be responsible for anyone making pe- for making people curious enough to watch it. <laughs> Have you seen it? Uh, no, it is te- I have seen it. Is that terrible. Film. It looks disgusting. <laughs> it is terrible. <laughs> like a like a just oh, it looks so bad. Now, Steven Spielberg is said to have gotten the idea for the film from the end of Close Encounters of the Third Kind when the aliens show up. Spielberg wondered what would happen if one of those aliens was stuck on Earth. Some fans think ET bears a resemblance to those aliens, and even the spaceships from the two films are cited for their visual similarities. Makes sense. I, I can I can see how you know, people always want to do that theory crafting like they're actually in the same universe and like yeah cool enough the Atari fun. video game as we talked about earlier for this film was one of the biggest critical and commercial failures in video game history leading to thousands of unsold cartridges getting buried in a landfill. It's one of those things. It, it, it was so bad it took like decades for anything to top it. Like now we have like newer releases of games like I don't know, like Cyberpunk's launched and like that too. Or I don't know, man. Like launched were so bad they had to be recalled. Or like well, Cyberpunk was taken off storefronts. <laughs> like like that was that bad. Um, but still, like it, it took decades for like other flops to be nearly as big as ET's was because that was millions. But of dollars I still don't know if there's gonna. Be- be a bigger flop because E.T. was a movie and it was a video game based on a movie and as we said it made like 2.4 billion dollars yeah. so Cyberpunk was nowhere near that amount oh yeah nowhere near you that. know what I'm saying it's, it's still so many cases where like you can draw lines and make comparisons but like there have been incredibly huge flops as well do you think industry. that since they buried all those copies that if you have a copy of E.T. it's worth money now not significant money. I don't think. I, 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 like, okay, like, just like, okay, throw. Kyle, look it up on throw against the wall. How much is a how, copy what, of got, E.T.? Answer me first. How much do you think a copy of E.T. is worth in, like, okay condition? Right now? Yeah, right now. How much do you think it's worth? I'll say $125. $125. That's just my, my estimated guess. Okay, okay. I'm going to go on shopping the E.T. video game and see what comes up. All right. I'm going to go ahead and do the next fact. Okay. Oh. Oh, never mind. You already got it. I already got it immediately. Um, for ET, the extraterrestrial Atari 2600 game for sale used, a used copy, um, is $12.99. <laughs> a brand new pristine copy. Is it in a box? sealed in the box. Factory sealed in the box. $49, uh, $50,000. Is it really? $50,000 on top of it. I told you. E.T. Um, the more realistic price, I think, is E.T., the video game, $1,000. That sounds a little more realistic. Um, used, though, twelve ninety-nine. <laughs> Other used copies go for $7, so the I price range goes you, everywhere. Man, but, but if it's in a box, it's worth a, a, a sealed, boatload. I told you. copy, which I'm sure those We need to go find that there. landfill, Kyle. Dig up E.T., come back. <laughs> well, other used sales are actually... Land- I, I, I say, I'm, I'm going to see if there's a landfill copy you can actually specifically buy. I'm going to check that oh, one. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, the shoes that Elliot wears in this movie is the same brand of Nike shoes worn by Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future, which Steven Spielberg was the executive producer for. Steven Spielberg originally intended on a sequel writing a proposed script, which we talked about already. Um, I'm not going to go ahead and rehash that. Um, Elliot tells Gertie that only kids can see T, which we talked about this too. That's where his mom uh, can't see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything else? I'm checking right here. Actually, apparently, no one is distinguishing whether or not the Atari was the the ET game was from the landfill or not, which is actually probably the right move. Like, do you want this game? It came from a landfill. What? <laughs> 
<laughs> so bad. Uh, but so apparently there's no distinction. But um, price varying from all the way from like twelve dollars all the way up to you know fifty thousand dollars. But in between, I've seen a lot of like um, like between like hundred dollars or less for like used copies that still work, and then up again we're like a thousand dollars all the way up to like fifty thousand dollars. So. Clearly, uh, video game prices are going everywhere, especially for legacy stuff like this now, and it makes no sense to me. I think investors got into it, and it was a bad idea. Um, but that's just what the prices are for the E.T. Atari video game now. Uh, moving on here, let's go back to some facts here. Um, let's see here. Um, when E.T. is undergoing medical treatment, off-camera voice says, the boys coming back, we're losing E.T. The person delivering this line is actually Melissa Matheson, who wrote the screenplay for the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my little fact there, and that concludes my notes. Jim, are you finished? All notes? I have, Kyle. All what right. do you think of ET: The Extraterrestrial, what do I buddy? Think, I think um, basically every award it got was deserved. It was the best film of the time. It was a cultural phenomenon that made a ton of money, and uh, it deserves all the praise it gets. Pretty much, it's one of the best films ever made um, in so many respects. And like uh, 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 the. You know the most iconic part of I think Steven Spielberg's career at the end of the day. Like Steven Spielberg has made incredible films, um, spanning generations already. But I think like if you have to take have to like, choose one film, you're like okay, this is the Spielberg film. It's E.T. all the way through. So I think it's a great iconic film. Any movie fan should watch at any age too. So absolutely fantastic. What are you giving it on a scale of one to ten? I think it's. I, I don't want to say anything's perfect, so I'm going to give it a nine. <laughs> but I'm going to say it's it's an excellent film in that way. Where like it's. Shares everything he gets. Jimbo, where do you put it? Man, I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring, watching it again last night brought all the childhood memories back. The stuffed animals I had. I even, I think I even had the. Uh, there was a, uh, not a record. It's a smaller record. I can't remember what they're called. Uh, the, the 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 small, but it had the nah. picture book with it where read along and you could follow in the book. I had that. Um, the iconic music, uh, the video game, um, everything about this. Uh, was awesome. Um, doing this podcast, you know, we do a lot of movies that we haven't seen before. This one I've seen, and I, I revisit it again. It's a great movie. Great family film. Oh, yeah. It, and, you know, even even watching it last night, I was getting choked up, man, because, you know, when, when E.T.'s dying, you know, you, well, first when they find him laying in the river or mm-hmm. the creek, and he's all, like, white and, like, you know what I mean? And they bring him in, and when he's actually going to die, and, and it's just... Man, it's oh, a, yeah, it's, oh, yeah. It's, the, the film's tough. No, the it film's was tough. rough. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm sitting here getting choked up. You know what I mean? And then you know, when uh, I thought it was a great scene when ET's ET's in the body bag, you know, mm-hmm. and he starts talking, Elliot. Elliot. He's like, "Shut yeah. up, just shut up." Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, like I compare some like I don't think any I don't know if any other film top of my head that rides the line as well as ET does, where it's it's tough emotionally to watch. But it's never overbearing where I feel like it's too harsh on a child right. to watch that film and be overwhelmed by the sadness and emotion of it. It rides that line better than any other film I can think of. Well, I mean, because you even it's, you even have Gertie, you know, yeah. she said, Mommy, is he dead? And she's like, I think so, honey. And she's like, yeah. I wish he'd come back and, or whatever. And, and, you know, and she, the, the, the sheer emotions on all the kids. Yeah. It's and a if you're watching that film, it's, it, it affects you too in the exact same way. But it really does like like it. It never goes too far though, where you have to stick with that like overwhelming emotion of like sadness and can't like deal with it. Like I feel like even if you have an emotional child, you can show them this film and then you're not like overwhelmed by it in a really great way. I know some you know? people don't like this movie. Okay, that's their pride. Mm-hmm. But for me, I think this is either going to be a nine point seven five for me or a ten. 
just because I think everything about it was almost perfect. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm. Everything. Actors, age ranges, I, film score, yeah, uh, cinematography, visual effects, puppeteering, uh, everything. The, the the iconic scene of him flying into the the uh, the moon, you know, across the moon. Um, now there was a little bit of a cheesy, you know, you could tell that it was they were on. But I have a question for you yeah. though: Why were they still pedaling the bikes while they were flying through the air? You know what I mean? They were still pedaling. <laughs> Well, you're in the middle of the air. What do you do? The only thing you know how to do, which is in that case, pedal your And that one kid's like, yeah. tell me when we land. You know, he closes his eyes. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? But I, I, I really enjoy this movie. I, I think it's one that you can sit down as a family and enjoy. You can sit down by yourself and enjoy. And it's going to be enjoyed for generations. And, and I think you can see the effect it had, number one, by all the awards it won, but also by them preserving it in the National Film Registry or whatever they did just last year, okay. where it will be around forever. And yeah. I think this movie put Spielberg on the map. I think it gave him a lot of credibility and, and probably money to do other movies that yeah. we all it, enjoy it, now. It's, it's a film that's critical for defining that whole decade. You know, in the, oh, way, yeah. in the way that... It is the uh, 80s movie of the 80s. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, you can't, like, if you're talking about the 80s, you don't, you don't, you know, you don't dismiss E.T. You just don't. You know, same thing like, uh, even a decade later, you don't dismiss Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. You know, those kind of things where it's just like, you, you, it, it changed everything else going forward you know immediately every other film has to think about et when they make films you know not rip it off but like in terms of like how you view your audience product placement everything goes and like the making of films and the culture had an impact on them. it's like in terms of cultural impact you just can't can't dismiss it right it's huge and deserved so yeah love it to death so there you have it that's et the extraterrestrial and the extra long episode it looks like so mm-hmm. um if you want to follow us on the social medias uh just the tragedy of cinema podcast you find us um, anywhere. If you want to leave us a review, um, Kyle will have a TikTok. Yeah, uh, uh, we have some interesting plans made. I, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> just wait till you hear our Exorcist episode that you, which will be coming out this Monday on Halloween. Yes, so uh, special Halloween. release on Halloween. We will be having three releases. We have um, the Universal Monster uh, movie I did with my dad, which was I think it's Werewolf of London. I believe so. Let me check to make sure real yes, quick. I think it's Werewolf of London. That, no, we already recorded it. Oh. So uh, it's oh, Werewolf right. of okay. London. Yeah. And then we have uh, The Exorcist coming out, mm-hmm. and then we also have The Howling Man, our uh, Twilight Zone episode coming out on Monday. So you get three episodes on Monday, and we'll probably not send anything else the rest of that week, and then. After that, we'll go back to a regularly scheduled yeah. episode on Wednesday, Thursday. So, yeah. with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. <laughs>